may read the Bible, Val. Thank you. Right, good morning, everyone. Luke 11, we continue in the series, and it's from uh, verse 14 to 28 on page 1042. Jesus and Beelzebul. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who'd been mute spoke, and the crowd were amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan's divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. So whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Well, then it goes and takes seven more spirits and seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And he replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Morning. Okay, we're going to begin with a quick quiz. Okay, let me see if I can get this working. What is that called? Okay, let's hear it. Oh, let's do it. All right. Left, left arm for scone. 
<laughs> a vast minority in Scon. Okay. Um, what about, let's get more complicated, what do you call that? A bun? We've got a bun. Any, any others? A roll? Anything else? A bap? So you can see the poms already. So if you live in Manchester, where I'm from, in England, um, there's a debate about whether that's a barn cake, a bun, a roll, um, a muffin, an oven bottom, all these different names that you can come up with. That's uh, a bread cake, yeah. What do you call it in Yorkshire, Heather? Yeah, you don't have bread in Yorkshire, that's right. That's, uh, <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> with things like that, they're, they're sort of trivial things. And, and we can pretty much sit on the fence, can't we? We can let bygones be, let people call it what they want. But what about more important things? How do you decide who or what to trust in life? You know, pretty soon we'll be asked um, to vote on which politicians we've got the most confidence in at the state election. Uh, Cameron sent us some useful advice on how to think that through Christianly in the weekly emails and the leaflets. But um, unless you spoil your ballot paper, you can't sit on the fence, can you? Uh, You have to decide. And what about Jesus? Uh, Who do you reckon he is? Jesus tells us that there's a right answer to that question and there's a wrong answer. Who is Jesus? It's a good question for, for, for us to ask both if we're believers, followers of Jesus, and it's a good question if you don't call yourself a Christian. If, if you are a Christian, um, thinking about who Jesus is and, and what he's done, it reminds us of a, his goodness to us and just how safe we are in him. And it stops us sliding back into trying to save ourselves. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, well, pretty much everyone else in the world will tell you that that's okay. That actually, to let people believe what is true for you, to, to let people believe what's true for them, as so long as it, it doesn't do anyone any harm, that's what you should do. But how does anyone know that that is true? So this morning, I'd encourage you, don't let anyone else tell you what to think. How, how do you, and ask, how do you rationally decide who is worth trusting, worth investing yourself in? Weigh up for yourself the evidence about Jesus, and I reckon you'll find he's worth investigating. And today's passage is a great opportunity to see what Jesus thought about himself and about how he thought we should respond to him. So there's an outline in your leaflets there. I've, gone, I've got moved away from beginning everything with the same letter, like uh, Cameron's obsessed with. Um, we're, going, we're going with the, um, the, house, the house theme, all right? So first up, no fence sitting, looking at verses 14 and 16. And here's the thing. You can't be neutral about Jesus. You can't be neutral about Jesus. The claims he makes about himself and the eyewitness reports about him mean that you have to decide one way or the other. So as we begin in verse 14, Jesus casts out a demon, so an evil spirit from someone, and it provokes a debate in the crowd that's looking on. Because there was no denying Jesus' power. You know, Jesus, by this point in the gospel, had done loads of miracles. 
And we'll look at some of those in a moment. But the big question was, what was the source of Jesus' power? You know, the crowd were amazed. But their law told them, they were doing the right thing. Deuteronomy 13 told them that miraculous signs weren't necessarily good. You have to weigh up if the person doing the signs was for or against God. And when we hear claims and miracles, we should weigh them up. Not just if they happened or not, but whether or not they point us away from God or towards God. Um, Because miracles are like Facebook or like music. You know, they're not inherently good or evil, but they can be used for good or used for evil. So the big question being asked of Jesus is where does he get his power from? From God or from Beelzebul? So that's another name for the devil or Satan. So you know who this is? It's not the devil. It's there. That's Lance Armstrong. So he, well, he came first, well, so he won the Tour de France seven times. He came first in the Tour de France seven times. And everyone used to admire him um, and think he was really impressive before it was proved that the source of his power was cheating with blood transfusions and trying to ruin the careers of anyone who accused him of doing exactly what he was doing. Now, we prefer a story like Chloe Kim. You see her in the Winter Olympics? So she won the gold medal in one of the snowboarding events. Because her story is one, uh, her power to win just came from her and her family's sacrifices and, and battling against the odds to go on and win. And that kind of story, the purity of it, the, the goodness of the source of the power resonates with us, doesn't it? So how does Jesus answer the question about where his power comes from? Before we get into that, just a very quick side note about the idea that there is even such a thing as Satan and demons and even such a thing as miracles. So the Bible just assumes as facts that there are personal, malicious, spiritual beings who are against God and against us. And our Western secular culture um, tends to sort of rationalise that, doesn't it? That bad things happening is purely down to nature, uh, and in people doing bad things, it's down to their circumstances or brain chemistry or something like that. But actually, our culture is probably the only culture in history that's excluded the idea of, of the forces of evil. Uh, so why do we think, ahead of all of history and uh, ahead of all current cultures today, we've got it right? And when we think about it, which of us can honestly say that we've never had that experience of sensing evil at play? I think all of us have. Uh, And miracles, lots of people struggle with the idea of miracles. For starters, very few of us have experienced or witnessed a miracle firsthand. And again, our scientific worldview says that miracles can't exist. So science says that all events we can observe are repeatable because they're caused by other observable events. But that makes a massive assumption that there must always be a natural cause for something. Sure, science can only measure natural causes, but that doesn't prove 
that there can't be any other kind of cause. And you couldn't make an experiment that proves no supernatural phenomenon is possible. And there's a philosopher called Alvin Plettinger. And he says to, to argue that miracles can't exist because they can't be measured by science. That argument is, it's got a quote here, this is like the drunk who insisted on looking for his lost car keys under the streetlight on the grounds that the light was better there. In fact, it would go, go the drunk one better. It would be to insist that because the keys would be hard to find in the dark, they must be under the light. Science doesn't prove that there can be unnatural causes. Uh, the Bible does treat miracles like they are unusual uh, and, and that they mean something. Uh, and Christians believe that miracles happen for the same reason we, we all believe other histories, that there are reliable eyewitness accounts that they happened. So assuming that they're real and, and going along with the Bible's assumption of the existence of evil spirits and, and some power and influence in, with some power and influence in this world... Assuming all that, where do you reckon Jesus gets his power from? So let's have a look how Jesus answers the question. Point two, our house divided. Jesus argues that what he has been doing with his power shows where it has come from and what his miracles mean. So verse 17 there, Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. So a house or a kingdom need all their resources pulling together in, in the same common cause or else they will fail. Uh, and for Is Israelites at the time, this wasn't um, a theory. This was part of their nation's history. They'd had they divided as a kingdom, leading to civil war and chaos, uh, and eventually collapse and exile. And Jesus is saying, "Look at the things I've done. They undo evil. They bring only good." Because Jesus has been healing the sick, he's been casting out evil spirits, he's resuscitated the dead, he's turned a packed lunch into a community barbecue for thousands, he's walked on water, he's calmed a storm. If it was Satan doing this behind this, he'd be undoing his own work of bringing suffering and lies and death into the world. But Jesus' miracles show, verse 20, that what is at work is the finger of God. That's another way of saying it's God's power at work. And Jesus, he claims that his own miracles show that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus' miracles, they don't show him to be the bad guy. They show him to be God's plan for saving people into relationship with him. And it's not just that Jesus' miracles show his, his power and his authority, they do that. But they also give a sneak preview of what he's going to do with that power. 
His miracles show compassion, love and rescue. Just one example. So back in Luke chapter 8, a synagogue leader had come pleading with Jesus to save his only child, a 12-year-old daughter dying of a fever. Before Jesus got, could get there, she died. But when Jesus eventually gets there, everyone's mourning. Jesus tells those mourning to stop wailing. And he holds the hand of the, the little girl's body and says, Little girl, get up. Now that would be a cruel thing to, to say and a cruel thing to do, wouldn't it, if he, if he couldn't help her? But he could. Even death couldn't stop Jesus doing good. The little girl got up immediately and everyone's astonished. And no one in that house was questioning if Jesus was good. So look at Jesus' miracles and decide what they say about him. Which direction are they heading? Because if these eyewitness accounts are right, and Jesus really does have the power of God. What are you going to do with that information? Jesus says, if I'm good, I'm God's king. And you can't sit on the fence. Every one of us needs to trust in him as our rightful king. Well, the trouble is, we all want to be king or queen of our own lives. Even when we know the saving grace of God through Jesus, we tend to revert back to, our, to building outposts of our own old kingdom in a life that belongs to Jesus. We can forget to trust Jesus to save us and make us right and start trying to find salvation in other things. But the good news is Jesus' miracles show us that he has all authority and power to save us, despite our failures. Jesus has all the power and authority of God to completely, remove, to completely save us from sin and evil. Because Jesus is, and our third point here, Jesus is the master of the house. You know, we watch so many movies, don't we, where it's about a battle between good and evil. And we feel the tension between good and evil in our own lives, don't we? You know, bad things happen to good people. Um, injustices are done. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. And we can end up feeling like the end is uncertain. We can end up thinking that maybe the good guys won't win in the end. But Jesus gives us a picture here that shows what's, what's spiritually going on under the bonnet of creation and God's plan to, to redeem it as, he, as Jesus comes as conquering king. So verses 21 and 22. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armour in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. That Jesus is the someone stronger who overpowers Satan, the strong man. But this isn't just like any other horror movie that you've seen, you know, where you think they've won only for Jason or Freddy or whoever to be mysteriously gone, ready to come back for the sequel. 
Now, there's no sequel because Jesus completely defeats Satan. When we trust and believe in Jesus, he disarms Satan's power over us. See, Satan used to be able to accuse us before God, saying, look at how they ignored you. Look at how they rebelled against you. They deserve your judgment. They deserve punishment. And he'd have been right. God is pure, uh, his love and his holiness. He can't just let evil go and still be good. But Jesus' ultimate act of love was that he gave up his power and authority to submit to death on a Roman cross. And he did it to take on himself the punishment we deserve, paying the price of our rebellion against God. So now, Satan can no longer accuse us. Uh, 1 John 3 verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. God's love and God's justice meet in Jesus on the cross. So now when Satan accuses us, God can rightly say, justice has been done. Their sins have been wiped out. They're adopted into my family for eternity. In Jesus' death and resurrection, that victory is won. Now Satan still prowls around until Jesus returns. uh, But he's in his death throes and can no longer accuse us if we belong to Jesus. Um, have you seen the movie Wonder Woman? This is no spoilers here, really. She says this speech. I used, to want to, I used to want to save the world, to end war and bring peace to mankind. But then I glimpsed the darkness that lives within their light. I learned that inside every one of them, there will always be both. The choice each must make for themselves. Something no hero will ever defeat. Now I know, only love can save this world. Uh, Wonder Woman's half right. Uh, Only love can save the world. But Jesus is the hero who loved us perfectly and really has overcome that darkness. So if Jesus is your king, no demon or Satan uh, can ever win you. Your ultimate battle is won for you. But we mustn't be complacent because, verse four, uh, our fourth point, we're living in a dodgy suburb. Looking at verses 23 to 26. So, as we said, Satan is real and has significant influence in this world. Such that this world is not neutral territory. And we're in danger of falling under his, uh, Satan's influence without Jesus. We need someone stronger. Verse 23. Jesus said, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And then Jesus goes on to describe a spirit leaving a person, wandering about in the desert, and returning with his his other demon mates because he finds the house all clean and tidy. And so the person ends up worse than when they started. What Jesus is warning us against is trying to straighten out our own house. He's warning us against trying to save ourselves. 
whenever we sin, we're basically putting our trust in something else other than Jesus to save us, to make us right. And we're just not up to the job of saving ourselves. Uh, trying to save ourselves or trying to get our own house in order, all that does is give Satan an easy time. Uh, we're not made to have an empty house. We're made for relationship with God. And Jesus makes that possible by making us clean and living in us by his spirit. The Holy Spirit, who indwells believers, believers is like the down payment on our eternal inheritance. And when we have the Holy Spirit, the, the enemy, he can only harass. He certainly can't possess believers. But Jesus is warning us that we don't live in a passive environment. That, that it's dangerous to sit comfortably on the fence about Jesus. You can't sit on the fence about Jesus because Satan owns the fence. The Apostle Paul put it like this in Ephesians. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, the devil is bent on destroying Christians and their testimony, and in stopping the progress of the gospel. Just this week, Cameron and I were on a course, and we heard from another pastor on the course how... He'd seen evil spirits, he'd seen demonic activity, spooky, scary stuff. But the more usual, more effective work of Satan is much more deceitful, much more everyday and ordinary and mundane. Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your, this is before you're Christian, before, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And Satan convincing people to just go along with the world's worldview. So what do we do with this? Should we be worried about Satan? Should we be looking under our bed at night, um, looking for demons to cast out and things like this? Well, the point is not to get spooked about whether every bad thing or bad person has an evil spirit behind it. The point is to get spooked about where you stand with Jesus. Sitting on the fence, hedging our bets about Jesus, isn't a safe place. Satan's greatest work is to accept the worldview around us. So we don't even think about God. But that isn't a neutral position. It's a position of rebelling against God. It's a position of being a prisoner to sin. So how do we escape this prison? How do we survive this dodgy suburb? Point five, housewarming. All we need to do is welcome Jesus in by hearing and obeying his word to repent and believe in him. So verse 27, 28. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, 
Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You can just picture this woman, can't you? I bet she's someone else's mum. Oh, that Jesus is lovely, isn't he? If only my Derek had turned out like that. <laughs> and I bet we've all seen paintings of the Virgin Mary. Um, she's always sort of depicted as serene and very pale and a sort of whole, despite being Middle Eastern, a little pale, has sort of a holy glow around her, looking very blessed. Well, Jesus says no. It's those who repent of living with themselves as head of their house of life and give it up for Jesus to take total possession. That's who's truly blessed. There is coming a day when God will no longer tolerate the evil of Satan or demons or humans. Jesus will return to judge justly and fairly. And none of us would stand in that judgment, even by our own standards, let alone God's. Um, the Speeds have got um, an inspection of their rental coming up on Wednesday. So they've been furiously, I mean, I'm sure that's great already, but they've been sprucing it up um, all weekend. If we obey Jesus' words to trust and believe in him, when God inspects our house on that last day, will be found in absolute, perfect, pristine condition. Because Jesus fully occupies us. On our own, all we can do is put a bit of polyfiller in the cracks and paper over them. But Jesus makes us into a whole new house. So if you haven't heard and obeyed this word, be warned. You are not on safe, neutral ground. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has come upon us in goodness, kindness, defeating evil. If you are not for Jesus, you are against him. And wouldn't today be a good day to give the house of your life over to Jesus, to have him take his rightful place as king? But for us who are believers, let's be reminded that we, we do fight a spiritual battle against uh, forces of darkness. But we fight from a position of victory, from victory, not for victory. The most Satan and demons can do is harass us and distract us. And we can all do our own sort of property inspection of ourselves. Are there any rooms in our life that we're doing our best to keep locked away and hidden from God? We need to repent and hand them over to God. And as for dealing with Satan and demons, be streetwise, yes. But to finish, what was the Apostle Paul's advice to the Christians in Ephesus? So Ephesus, the church there, they've been converted out of um, practicing magic and witchcraft, all sorts of weird, occult, evil stuff. So what's his advice to them? 
All you need to do is stand your ground. Uh, Remember the armour of God in Ephesians 6? The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and pray. The, The truth of the gospel, faith, godly living, and prayer. Basic stuff. That's all you need. Very ordinary looking, but precious, powerful armour if you have the spiritual eyes to see. Remember what happened to the 72 disciples Jesus sent on a mission? They came back buzzing about, we've been casting out demons in your name. But from Jesus' point of view, that was just a sideshow to what was actually important. Jesus said, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So whether we're dealing with a demon or just a dark human heart, whether Satan is actively at play or it's just another hangover of living in a world cursed because of sin, our response is to be the same. Stick to the gospel and pray that people trust in Jesus, God's true king. So who do you reckon Jesus is? Where does his power come from? Jesus says there's a right answer and a wrong answer. There is no neutral ground. Whoever is not with me is against me. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Uh, Thank you that his power is good, comes from you. I thank you that he has, once and for all, defeated Satan and his minions, and that we can be without fear, knowing we're safe in you. And Father, if, um, if we've not put our trust in Jesus yet, and we want to do that now, pray this, follow along this prayer. And Father, in heaven, we recognise... That we have been sitting on the fence or avoiding Jesus and recognise him now as from you, as God's king and invite him to be king of my life. Amen.